Genesis 18, 22 through 33. And you'll find that on page 13 if you're using the church Bible. I know you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me this morning. And uh, let me just pray briefly again for God's blessing on his word as we come to the preaching of it. Father, we do ask that you would do a great and mighty work among us, that your spirit would be poured out on us, that as the wind comes and we don't know where it comes from or where it goes, you have said, so is everyone who's born of your spirit. And so we pray that your spirit would move in this place as your word is proclaimed, that he would take the word of Christ and that he would open the eyes of our hearts and enlighten our minds and renew our wills. We pray that you would make us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus and to understand more of his saving work and more of our union with him and more of where we are headed as those who have been purchased by his blood. We pray, our God, that you would do this for us and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 22, the Lord has come in in a pre-incarnate form. He has come with two other angels who have appeared as men, three strangers who are traveling. Abraham has exercised hospitality. He has opened his home together with Sarah. They had come with a message that um, in a year Sarah would conceive and that God would begin to fulfill those promises by giving Abraham and Sarah a son, and that before that would happen, God would bring judgment on those wicked cities, Sodom and the other four that we were told Abraham delivered back in chapter 14, those cities that had resisted God's call to repentance and had given themselves over to so much selfishness and pride and wickedness. And the Lord has just revealed to Abraham as his friend, he has revealed that he is going to both bring redemption and judgment. Judgment first, followed by redemption. And now as Abraham stands there, having received from the Lord this message of salvation and judgment and all that the Lord is about to do, Moses writes for us in verse 22, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous from the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes, Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if there are 45 there. Again, he spoke to them and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know about you, but prayer is one of those things that 
is so much more complex in my own thinking, so much more complicated. It's one of those things I feel painfully my own deficiencies in. It is one of those things I long on a daily and weekly basis to grow in my understanding of. But prayer is not just complex, and it's oftentimes not just a complex thing in our own thinking because we acknowledge our own weakness and deficiency, and and we acknowledge that uh, we, we don't pray as we ought, we don't pray effectively and fervently as we ought, but it's complicated, and it's one of those things that carries with it a, a great complication in our own thinking because because sometimes God answers great prayers and sometimes God doesn't seem to answer great prayers. Sometimes God answers prayers favorably according to the petitions that we have gone to him for and sometimes he has answered them with an answer that we didn't want and we haven't noticed that he's answered them in a way that we haven't thought Um, possible. And that opens the question, why pray if God's sovereign, if God is in control of all things, if God uh, ordains whatsoever comes to pass, if everything is working according to his eternal plan and purpose, why pray? And as we consider the subject of prayer and we think about all the complications and all the dynamics of prayer and, and the life of a believer as the life of one who is praying, it's very helpful for us to understand that here in Genesis 18, we have the very first prayer in the Bible. We have been told of men praying together in Genesis chapter 4. They began to gather together in corporate worship. Men began to call on the name of the Lord together. But here's the first time that we are given insight into a believer in Scripture having communion with God and interceding for God. Now, in a very real sense, uh, Tim Keller has rightly said, Abraham is not just praying, he is priesting. Abraham is not just praying, he is priesting. One of the reasons why we are told here in Genesis 18 about this prayer in such detail is that it's not just Abraham asking for provision. Remember, Abraham has already prayed that God, in a sense, pled that God would let uh, Ishmael live before him. But we haven't seen any kind of extended discourse, any kind of um, prayer that, that encapsulates that intimate communion between the believer and the God who has revealed himself to him and has condescended to come down and to humble himself. You know, you see in this chapter, very interesting, that God comes down, Abraham stands before him. We now see this priestly prayer of Abraham, this intercessory prayer, this mediatorial prayer of Abraham, and then the Lord goes up. God comes down, Abraham communes, God goes up from Abraham. God is the one making the approach. God has revealed himself to Abraham. God has revealed to Abraham the things that he's about to do. Everything about this prayer comes on the heels of everything that Abraham has just heard that God is going to do. Now, we want to look this morning at sort of some of the details of Abraham's prayer. We want to consider the reason for his prayer first and foremost. We want to consider the manner of his prayer. And then we want to consider the outcome of this priestly prayer, the reason, the manner, and the outcome. And notice that we are told in verse 22 that two of those three men that came to Abraham turned and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Now, when we're considering why Abraham prays the prayer that he does, the first thing that we have to recognize is that God has just come and he has done something very wonderful. He has given Abraham a great measure of his truth. I am going to tell Abraham all that I'm about to do. I am going in a unique way to reveal all that I'm about to do to Abraham. And he is, we can take away from this passage, God has not just had a discourse, shall I hide this thing? No, I'm going to tell him because 
He's going to instruct his children and, and in turn, they're going to teach their children about salvation and judgment and they're going to warn and they're going to bring promises and they're going to instruct the next generation. You might think God went up from there and Abraham now is off to work until Isaac's born and then he'll instruct Isaac and all the things that God has revealed to him. But no, notice that Moses says Abraham still stood before the Lord. I think I like to envision this as best as I can. And I like to think about Abraham's processing everything he's just been told. Now, that's hard for us because you have your Bible, and if you read your Bible, you get loads of revelation. If you know Jesus Christ, every time you open the scriptures and God reveals his, his word to you and his will to you and the things he's doing, and I mean, we have all of it. There's nobody, I want to say this as emphatically as I can this morning, there is no one who has access to more of God's revelation than you. All that God has chosen to reveal, he reveals in the scriptures. And Abraham, at this point in history, is receiving just small portions of God's revelation. God is revealing bit by bit more of himself, more of his character, more of the plan of redemption, more of his righteousness, more of his justice, more of his holiness. And I like to envision I like to envision Abraham standing there, and I think what Moses says is, it's almost humorous, God has just said, okay, Isaac's going to be born next year. Before that happens, I'm going down, I'm seeing if the hardness and the impenitence of all these cities in the plain is as bad as I know it is. He's saying that for, from the human perspective to know that he's coming down in judgment, and, he's, and he is going to now have to execute judgment because of the hardness of men's hearts. And I like to envision Abraham sitting there and trying to process all this. I think when Moses says Abraham still stood before the Lord, it's him saying, okay, something big has just happened. By the way, we should do this every time we leave a worship service. When God reveals things, we, our response should be, okay, I'm still standing before the Lord. Now what? And Abraham's response is to turn to the Lord in prayer. He has received the revelation of God. He has received all the revelation of God's salvation and judgment. And Moses says he, stood, he still stood before the Lord. He wasn't going anywhere. Because he knew that when the living God reveals things, that that demands a response. Now, I like to envision Abraham processing everything. One of the neat things about this passage is that you learn a lot about what Abraham knows about the Lord. We just had uh, an examination upstairs when we received new members into membership at New Covenant. We like to go through basic questions about knowledge of Christianity. What is God like? Well, he's holy. Well, he's, he's loving. He's truthful. He doesn't change. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. People give different answers. And, and what are we like? Well, we're sinful, and we go through those questions. We're looking for general knowledge that, uh, that persons who are joining New Covenant understand general truths about the Lord and about Christianity. And, and here you can see that Abraham has a knowledge of God. He knows lots about God. Very interesting. Very little revelation apart from what God has taught him. But Abraham is processing all that he's hearing. He's processing everything God has been revealing to him. He knows that God is absolutely righteous. He knows that man is utterly sinful. He knows that man deserves judgment. Uh, very, very, very important for us to note, nowhere in this passage does Abraham say, Lord, that's not fair. Nowhere in this passage does he say, Lord, I don't understand. Why would you destroy anybody? 
Abraham understands that God is righteous and just. He will actually plead in part based on the righteousness of God. He will, in part of his prayer, when we come to the manner of his prayer, he will plead according to the righteousness of God. But as we consider here the rationale, Abraham is considering who the Lord is. He's considering what the Lord has said he's going to do. He's considering, no doubt, uh, those that the Lord has said he's going to sweep away in judgment. And notice Abraham's first prayer in verse 23. Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? For many years, I thought that Abraham was only praying this prayer because he wanted Lot to be delivered. There are a lot of theologians that believe that, that ultimately Abraham's main concern is that Lot, who is called righteous Lot, though he doesn't look very righteous, he is a believer. He is a, a evangelist in Sodom, so to speak. Um, Abraham's concern in praying this prayer, the reason he's praying it is he does not want Lot and those who are with Lot swept away. And that's true. That is true. Abraham's rationale for praying this prayer preeminently is his love and his care for his believing nephew and family. He, he, he knows, very interesting, he knows that there is communal judgment. That's, that's a concept that we're not very familiar with in our individualistic society. We're not very comfortable with that a lot of times. And yet a, a, a brief perusal through the scriptures show that everywhere, um, even the righteous are sometimes punished with the wicked. And that when judgment is falling on a nation or judgment's falling on the church or God is chastening the church, or he's chastening his people, sometimes that has a communal element to it. That was the whole history of Israel. When Israel went into captivity into Babylon, righteous Daniel went with them. And those righteous believers, and God had a purpose for that. He had a purpose for the chastening falling on the whole nation. And yet, that's one of the things that we don't think about, our own responsibilities to one another. Abraham, in some sense, gets that God is saying there is going to be a communal, yes, temporal judgment on these cities. But, and he is so thinking about Lot, and he is pleading with God that God would save Lot. Lord, don't destroy these cities because I want you to save my beloved, believing nephew and his family. But as I've studied this and as I've read numerous, numerous theologians on this passage, one of the things that I think has sort of started to take shape in my mind is that Abraham is not just praying for Lot's deliverance. He is praying that God would be merciful to the cities that he had helped deliver back in Genesis 14. Um, Abraham, in a sense, has a heart of mercy for those that deserve judgment. Abraham knows that he deserves judgment. Later in here, he'll say, uh, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked, and then he'll say, I who am but dust and ashes. I who am but dust and ashes. He acknowledges his, his frailty. And I have to read this to you because it's, it's really amazing. Um, when we're thinking about Abraham having a heart, desiring God to be merciful to cities that deserve God's judgment, who have, uh, who have hardened their hearts countless numbers of times and had become completely hostile to the Lord and to calls of mercy. No doubt Lot is in the city. We're told in the next chapter, I don't want to get into it too much, but in the next chapter, the men of Sodom judge Lot and they say, you know, you've been a judge since you've come in here. You've been judging us. What, they, what they're saying is we're, we're tired of hearing about truth. We're tired. You've, 
No doubt Lot is telling them there is a God who redeems. If we'll turn to him, there's redemption. And, and, and they play the whole, ah, don't judge. Don't judge. You're not supposed to judge. And they are resisting God and hardening their hearts and rejecting God. And yet, Abraham knows that he's a sinful man and he longs for God's mercy to be shown to other sinners, even very wickedly perverse and those given over to incredible violence and unbelief. And notice Sinclair Ferguson said, I never thought about this. This is absolutely brilliant. He says, the man who pleads here for Sodom, which is soon to become dust and ashes in God's sight, is a man who has been brought to plead with God exclusively because he is a man who has come to believe that he is dust and ashes in God's sight himself. I, I thought that's absolutely remarkable. Abraham's pleading for Sodom, which is about to become dust and ashes in God's sight. And he acknowledges that he is a man who is only dust and ashes in God's sight. He's acknowledging that he needs redemption, that he's a sinner, that he needs the mercy of God. He's acknowledging that he wants others to know the mercy of God. Now, it doesn't say, Lord, save them eternally. It doesn't say, Lord, send your gospel into Sodom. But by Abraham praying that the Lord would not destroy the city for the sake of righteous who may be in there, Abraham is praying for God to exercise more long-suffering because Abraham knows that long-suffering means opportunity for redemption. Abraham assumes that there are probably more believers in Sodom. This is something I'd never thought about, that Abraham is, Abraham is looking at cities that he himself had delivered back in chapter 14, and he had had all kinds of conversation with the king of Sodom and with others, and, and I imagine that in, in his conversations he had talked about the promises of God and about the God who redeems and about the redemption of God and that God was going to send a redeemer to bless the world and that he had been given these great promises. And Abraham, in praying for Sodom, when he starts with, when he starts with 50 in the city, he is assuming that there are more than just Lot and his family who have heard the gospel and who have believed. He is assuming that there are people in that city that maybe he himself had shared the gospel with that had believed the truths of God's redemption. And I think in, in expecting that there was more than just Lot and his family, Abraham is hoping that if God would extend his long suffering and not destroying Sodom and the cities around it, that there could be more redemption. Now, I think that's instructive for us because one of the things we should be praying for on a daily, daily basis is for the salvation of, of those around us, for the salvation of the notorious wicked, notoriously wicked. We should be praying for the salvation of those in the church that are not living, um, who have, who have uh, bound themselves to churches and are living in sin. We should be praying for God's mercy to be on all sorts of people. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says that prayer should be made for kings and those in authority and for that, that Jesus is the savior of all kinds of people. And so we should be praying for the salvation of all kinds of people. That should be a staple in our prayer life. And yet... I'm ashamed that I don't pray for the salvation of others more than I do. And so we want to take away from this the example of Abraham. The rationale for Abraham's prayer is that he is longing for God's mercy and grace to extend even to the most hardened and wicked that God had said he was going to judge. Now, I think that Abraham also has a concept not just of the mercy of God and not just of the... Not just of the um, 
the salvation and the grace of God that he himself has already experienced. But Abraham has an understanding of of the patience of God. He understands that even though God has said, I'm going to destroy Sodom, because on a surface reading, you might say, well, this seems like Abraham doesn't like what God just said he's going to do, and he's challenging God and arguing with him. Because it almost looks, as one writer said, as somebody in a, in a market trying to bargain because they don't like the price. And so there's a sense in which we could look at this and, and we could say, well, Abraham doesn't like that God has just said, I'm going to pour out my justice. He doesn't like the holiness of God. And so he's arguing with God because he doesn't like what decision God made. Well, I think what Abraham understands is what Jonah understood. Jonah understood that though God put in his mouth the message, 40 days and Nineveh is no more. By the way, Jonah never preached the gospel, but he did preach the gospel because God's sending Jonah to say 40 days and Nineveh is no more meant, and Jonah got this, meant that if the men would repent and turn to the Lord in faith and repentance, God would suspend and remove that judgment. That's the only reason he sent Jonah in there. And I think Abraham understands something of that. Though the Lord has said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Their sin is very grave. I will go down and see whether they have done according to the outcry. And, and Abraham knows he's going to send justice and judgment on Sodom. And yet Abraham understands that God reveals those things so that men would turn to him. God doesn't change, but in his, in his revelation in scripture, when God says, if you do this, then this, if this happens, then this. Don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. God says, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God so that we would turn back to the Lord. So that we would say, Lord, I have walked unrighteously. Have mercy on me. And God does have mercy on everyone that calls on him for mercy. And so Abraham understands that if, if God would just extend that long suffering, maybe God would then have mercy. God would suspend the judgment on Sodom. And so He is priesting, again, in the words of Keller, he is priesting for people. He's praying for a city. You know, there's this great story, and I shared it many, many years ago with you. Um, There are not many really great prayers. When I say really great, I mean large prayers that true believers pray that God tends to answer. Really big prayers. Uh, One of those in, in church history, John Knox, um, who really planted Presbyterianism in Scotland, Um, And I had a professor say this once. He said, you know, Knox famously prayed, and it was recorded that he prayed, Oh, God, give me Scotland for the gospel. Let me be used singularly to see the whole nation converted. And, and, And my professor said, one time in history, God answered that prayer favorably. Basically gave Scotland over to Jesus for a period of time because of Knox's prayer that God would bless the ministry in such a way that the whole, the whole country would turn to Christ. We should pray large prayers. We should pray not discouraged prayers. We should pray because we know God is long-suffering. You know, the only reason that we're all here today and the only reason that everybody's just scurrying around all over the earth and driving around and walking around and doing whatever they're doing today is because God's long-suffering, because God has promised to redeem a people. And so we should pray, we should pray in the face of knowing that God judges nations for their wickedness, judges the church for its sins. We should pray large prayers for God to do great and merciful and kind 
and gracious and redemptive things in the world and in the church. But secondly, I want us to consider this morning uh, the matter of Abraham's prayer. Now, Abraham, I've already said, I don't think he's coming. I don't think he's dishonoring the Lord when he comes. I don't think he's saying, Lord, I hate what you just said. Don't do that. I think he knows God is righteous. He, he says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham knows if God destroys Sodom, if he turns Sodom and the cities around it to dust and ashes, that the judge of the earth is doing the right thing. That whatever God does, he is doing what is right. So he's not, he's not dishonoring God in his prayer. He's not complaining. He's not, he is not um, venting frustrations to God. He is, again, interceding, and he's pleading, and he does it with incredible humility. And one of the things about the manner in which Abraham approaches God is that he does it with great boldness, and he does it with great humility. Very fascinating. He, he, he does it persistently, and there's boldness. He keeps going back. Well, Lord, if, there, if there's 50 in the city, and then, you know, Abraham knows 50 is probably an overshot. So he keeps, keeps going back. Well, what if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? He just keeps going down, keeps, keeps going back to the Lord, and he's going boldly. There's a boldness. There's a courage. Abraham is going to the God of the universe courageously as an intercessor for the salvation of others. He is going, he is going to God's throne of grace with boldness. He is, he is approaching God, and yet he's doing it with great humility. Notice the way that he sets up each of his petitions. Notice that he says in verse, um, in, in verse uh, 24, Suppose there are 50 righteous will, within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? The first place that you see Abraham's humility is that he comes and he asks God, he is asking. He's not telling God. He's not, he is not coming to God saying, why would you do this? That's not the sort of questioning Abraham's doing. He's not coming angry with God. By the way, if you ever hear church leaders tell you, if you're angry with God, you just go and tell him you're angry. You run as far away from everything that person says and writes as quick as possible. There are people who under some kind of supposed um, sense of transparency and sincerity will tell you, if you're angry at God, you just need to go and just say, Lord, I'm angry at you. Um, a creature as frail as us and as sinful as we are who acknowledges our sinfulness against his majesty would never do that, would never dream of going to the Lord and telling him in anger that you're angry at him. Abraham, in everything he does, in all of his boldness, in all of his persistence, he is constantly humbling himself. He is coming and saying, Lord, will you do this? Would you be so merciful as to spare the city if there were 50 in it? Yes, he reasons with them. He reasons according to God's character. In the manner in which he does it, he does it with boldness. He does it with humility. He says, I am but dust and ashes. Forgive me. He apologizes. I've always thought that's interesting. Abraham, as he goes back to the Lord, he says to the Lord, essentially, Lord, I'm sorry. Let me, let me please just ask you again, would you do it for this? And There is a timidity even in the courage and the boldness that Abraham has. And that comes, again, from Abraham recognizing his sinfulness. John Calvin has two magnificent sermons on this passage. And one of them is, I believe, titled, God Reveals Only What He Wants His Servants to Know. 
And um, in, that, in that sermon, he spends a, a, an enormous amount of time talking about the humility of Abraham and um, about Abraham's approach to God and constantly humbling himself. And Calvin says something I thought was interesting. He says there are loads of people in the church, loads of professing Christians in our day. He's talking about early 1500s. Loads of Christians who can talk about, um, they can talk about this idea of theology, this branch of idea, uh, theology, they can talk about scripture, they can talk about religious things, but they don't spend one second praying because they don't have a humble heart and they don't know how to go to the Lord as humble, broken sinners. Because the only people that pray, who really pray, and who really pray sincerely in the spirit and really have communion with God are those that humble themselves, who know they've climbed up. Calvin, at the opening of his Institutes, which one of the greatest books written in in all of Christian history, Institutes of the Christian Religion said that man will never attain to a right knowledge of himself until he first contemplates the face of God and then comes down to consider himself. Calvin says because what men do is they look around and when they look around and compare by what they see with other created things, that they, they think that they are upright and just and virtuous and wise. And when they, they go up and they contemplate the face of God and they see the God who is so holy that the angels, Calvin says, quoting Isaiah and, and the book of Revelation, so pure and radiant and majestic that the sinless angels cover their eyes. That when man has gone up and has seen that this is the God of which we speak, that he necessarily will see himself as vile and corrupt and full of every kind of vice, Calvin says. And, and, and then I love this, because most people don't get this, and will never hear this. Calvin says, God does not seek to abase us in order to abandon us, but to lift us up before him. So beautiful. God doesn't abase us, and he, he doesn't just want us to see our corruption and sinfulness and pollution to abandon us, but he does that so that we, like Abraham, would go to him and say, Lord, you are full of mercy. You are full of grace to someone so undeserving as me, and I want your salvation for others. And so, Lord, though I am nothing, though I am dust and ashes, though I am, I, I am unworthy of the least of your mercies, though I deserve nothing, though you don't have to do anything that I ask, because you have had mercy on me, have mercy on others. It's really beautiful. It's the way that the Christian life works. And that's the manner of the prayers of God's people. Finally, I want to look at the outcome. The Lord engages Abraham. He, very kind. I mean, God could have just said, Abraham, you know, have you ever noticed in the book of Job? Job's afflicted. Job's afflicted, Job's afflicted, children die, all of his possessions are taken away, his wife curses him, his health is stripped from him, and then he has a bunch of crummy friends judging him. He must have done something real bad, Job. And as you read through the book of Job, which is a very difficult book to read through, though very rewarding, you, um, you get this, you get this, you're like, wow, what, what awful friends. And they're awful, awful friends. You must have done something really bad, self-righteous, because if you had done good, this wouldn't happen. You did bad, that's why. Very, I mean, they are just like completely self-righteous. 
And, and Job is, is wrestling in his soul with why he's suffering and what's going on. And, and Job is said to be upright and blameless. He is, to, he is a model of a godly believer at that period of human history. He is the wisest man in the earth. And, and yet at the end of the book, God doesn't come and rebuke Job's friends. He'll have Job intercede for them, just like Abraham intercedes for Sodom. He'll tell him to pray and to intercede a priestly prayer for them. But God comes to, to Job and he says, now shut your mouth, cover your mouth with your hands, and I'll question you. The whole book, Job's like, you know, why does the Almighty do this? And God comes to him and he says, now shut your mouth, and I'm going to que- arm yourself like a man, and I'm going to question you. But here, but here, God allows Abraham to plead with him, and he entertains it. Yes, Abraham, if there are 50, I will spare the city for 50. Well, Abraham knows, well, Lord, if there's 45, well, if there's 40, if there's 30, and so on and so on. You know, the old writers used to say, Abraham should have just kept going and said, Lord, if there's one righteous person in the city, because God might have done it if there was just one. Abraham goes down to 10, there's not 10, but God is very merciful in entertaining the prayers of his people. That's part of the outcome. We learn that even if God's plan is not to answer our prayers according to what we desire, God always hears the prayers of his people and God always communes with his people. That's one of the big lessons we learn that even when we go to the Lord and we go consistently, you know, the apostle Paul said three times he pled with the Lord to take away the thorn in his side. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. He didn't say, I'm going to be speechless and silent. And he didn't say, Paul, I'll take away the thorn. He says, I'm going to give you my grace. I'm going to answer this prayer according to my wisdom. You know, God does answer Abraham's prayer, by the way. I don't know if you know this. God doesn't spare Sodom and the four other cities, but he does deliver Lot and his family. God answers Abraham's prayer in part according to Abraham's desire, but not according to the outcome that Abraham wanted or expected. It's always helpful for us when we pray and we're asking the Lord for things and we're seeking them, that we would step back and we would say, how has the Lord potentially answered this prayer? In what way different than maybe I expected did he answer this prayer? Now, um, Abraham is a priest here. He is acting as the first priest in the scriptures in one sense. I know Melchizedek is before him, but he is, he's showing us what a priest does. A priest intercedes. And even Abraham, who is the intimate friend of God, who, who God has just said, I am going to singularly bless you and the world through you. I'm going to bring the Redeemer through you. The great Abraham cannot suspend God's judgment on the wicked. And you're left at the end of this chapter asking, why, why did God inspire this? Why, why did God put this in the Bible? It's always a good question to ask. He didn't have to choose to include this prayer that Abraham prays. And I think we're meant to go, as God continues his revelation, as he continues to give it, we're meant to look for another priest. We're meant to look for another intercessory prayer. And, you know, there's a, a striking parallel between Abraham's priestly prayer and Jesus' priestly prayer in John 17. There Jesus says, you know, I've, you, you've given me these men, now keep them, keep them, sanctify them in the truth, you know, show them the glory that, that 
you, that I had with you before the world was. I finished the work that you've done. And he is Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, is the better priest. He is the only righteous one. In a sense, Jesus's prayer, in a very real sense, listen very closely. Jesus, the son of Abraham's prayer is, my father, I am the only righteous one in myself. And because I am righteous, have mercy on the many. If there's communal sin and the righteous can be carried away with the wicked, could there not be a righteousness that can have a communal effect? And Paul says in in Romans chapter 5, he says that just as one man's sin brought death to the many, so the righteous act of one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, justifies the many. And Jesus on the cross prays that priestly prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we can be sure that when Jesus Christ prays and he prays for God's mercy and redemption, that God the Father gives that. You know, remarkably, the very ones who crucified Jesus for whom he prayed when he hung on the cross, the very ones who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, are the very ones to whom he sent the apostles at the beginning of the book of Acts to preach the gospel are some of the very ones who are first converted on the day of Pentecost when Peter says, you took him, you crucified him with lawless hands, and they say, what shall we do to be saved? And that day, 3,000 are added to the church. And that is a direct answer of the priestly prayer of Jesus as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I love the way the hymn writes that five bleeding wounds he bears, received at Calvary, and that Jesus stands before his father and he pleads for forgiveness. Forgive them, oh, forgive, he cries, nor let that ransom sinner die. You know, the other comforting thought that we can take from this this morning is that Jesus doesn't stop interceding. He didn't just intercede on his way to the cross in John 17. He didn't just intercede When he hung on the cross, the writer of Hebrews says that we have a priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. How do I know that I'm not going to fall under the judgment of God on Judgment Day? It's not because I don't like the subject of the judgment of God. You know, there are are millions, if not billions of people that have convinced themselves they're not going to fall under the judgment of God because they don't like the doctrine of the judgment of God. How do I know? How does Nick Batsig know that I am not going to hear, depart from me, for I never knew you on Judgment Day? You know, I, I drove, I was back where I grew up on St. Simon's this week, and very sobering, just thinking, life is just flying by. Houses you grew up in, so long ago, flying by, and we're not guaranteed another day. None of you are guaranteed another day. Um, And yet, God has said that if you are in Christ, you have a priest who laid down his life for you, who atoned for all your iniquity, who ever lives to make intercession for you at the right hand of the Father, and that you're not going to be lost, and that nobody's going to snatch you out of his hand or his Father's hand, and that When he committed his spirit to his father at his death, he committed your spirit if you belong to him. And that you're going to stand on judgment day and all the judgment of God that you deserve and I deserve is going to be suspended for all of eternity because it fell on Jesus, because he took that judgment. In a sense, 
Jesus on the cross, when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, is saying, Father, continue to pour your wrath out on me that they deserve. Now, I hope that two things happen out of this this morning. I hope that one, this stirs up our desires to be more prayerful. I hope that it stirs up your desire to be praying not only for your own spiritual well-being, but for the salvation of those around you. And the notoriously wicked. How, what is our response? When we, see, when we see and hear wicked acts on the news, you know, when Dylan Roof went in there and wickedly massacred those nine in Charleston, um, I asked my friend, who happens to be a pastor in Charleston, has anybody gone to see him to bring him the gospel? And my friend said, well, I know, you know, Lots of people continue to visit and minister to the people. This man wickedly, uh, whose family members he wickedly mowed down. But but shouldn't we shouldn't we want Dylan Roof to know forgiveness and eternal life? Because if we don't, then we're saying I deserve it, and these people out here don't. We are not we are not viewing ourselves like Abraham. And then secondly, the thing I would like us to take away this morning is that. You have in Jesus Christ a, a priest and an a intercessor, a mediator, who is, he lives at the right hand of God to keep praying for you. When you're not realizing it, when you're going through the difficulties and the trials, when you're facing all kinds of hardships and needs, Jesus is constantly interceding for the spiritual and physical well-being of his people. He is ever living to make intercession for you. I don't know if there's a more comforting thought than that for the hardships of life, that the Savior is constantly continuing his redeeming work by doing what Abraham did here in Genesis 18, but doing it for you and doing it effectively to bring you to glory. That is such a remarkably comfortable thought to the souls of men and women that long for the assurance of God's love and mercy and peace and long for the salvation of others. Let, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would remind us of your own attributes, of your mercy and your long-suffering and your justice and your righteousness, that we would have right thoughts of you, and we pray that you would also give us right thoughts of ourselves, that we are sinful and weak and that we would not come presumptuously or come arrogantly before you, but that we would come with great humility, that you would remind us that we too are but dust and ashes and that we deserve the same thing as Sodom and yet you have placed all of our sins on your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not only atoned for us, but that you right now live to intercede for us. We thank you that though we do not see you, and though sometimes our our faith is waxing and waning, and and we, we sometimes realize it more clearly in others, not at all, yet you are constant, and you do not change as our priest and our mediator, and we thank you and praise you. And pray that you would stir us up by way of reminder this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.